welcome to the Pyramid Podcast, where three lads discuss all things the English football pyramid. On today's episode, is Harry Kane actually cursed? Are Man United's off-field decisions settling them for up for future on-field success? A managerial change at Crystal Palace with Roy Hodgson set to leave. We'll look ahead to the Premier League fixtures for title hopefuls Liverpool, Man City and Arsenal. We'll review the key games from the midweek EFL, including Bristol City winning the Premier Pod Cup against Southampton and preview the key weekend fixtures. And we'll finish with Laura, who talks through Yeovil's upcoming home fixture. I'm your host, Alex Murphy. And once again, I'm joined by Tom Gallagher and Tom Lawrence. Boys, want to start with something outside of the uh, English game, but Harry Kane, Loro. 1-0 loss in the Champs League against Lazio. 3-0 loss in the league against Leverkusen to extend the gap between them and Leverkusen to five points. They've already gone out of the German Cup uh, to lower league opposition. No denying Harry Kane sort of settled to life in Germany really well. I think he scored 28 goals across all competitions, but potential to not win a trophy with Bayern Munich in the first season. Obviously, he isn't cursed, but he does have really, really bad luck with major trophies. Well, no, he just played for Tottenham until he was 30. Uh, I, like That's the only reason he hasn't won a trophy so far. This is a guy that's gone to Bayern Munich in his first season. He's got 24 and 21 in the league. Yes, they lost the first leg of the Champions League, but they'll beat Lazio at home and go through. Yes, they ran into a really good Bayern Leverkusen side this year, but they're still only five points off. That can swing around within a week. And it wouldn't surprise me if he still ends up winning a trophy in his first year. If he doesn't, it would be bloody unlucky. But he's doing really, really well. And let's be honest, he's definitely going to win a trophy within the next year. And he's probably going to win one in the summer with England anyway. So no one no one really cares. So I think that narrative is a little bit moment in time. It's all fun and games to look at Harry Kane and laugh about the fact that he might not win a trophy after leaving Spurs. But the only reason he hasn't won one yet is because until he was 30 years old, he was playing his football at White Hart Lane and, and at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. If he stays with Bayern Munich more than a year, he'll definitely win one. He'll probably win multiple ones. So for me, that's a bit of a non-story about a player who's actually doing really, really well. Tomo, do you think that if they were to go on to not win any of those trophies, so Leverkusen were to keep their form up when the uh, when the Bundesliga and then not to win the Champions League with some other strong sides in it but Kane carries on scoring his goals and scores probably on for about 35 to 40 goals this season that he'll still consider it a successful first year in Germany No no he won't because he's gone there to win trophies but um, it's a three year contract so even if he doesn't win any trophies this year which um, I'd it's hard to predict that Bayern will ever not win a trophy. But if you look at the Bayern he's come into, they were terrible last year and they only won the, the, the Bundesliga on the fact that Dortmund sort of bottled it on the last day of the season. They were quite poor. And obviously then that's why they got rid of Nagelsmann. And that's why they brought Tuchel in. So they, they, they're poor anyway. They brought in Kane um, as a replacement for Lewandowski. Obviously, he's going to score those goals and be that flat track bully. Scores, I think he scored 28 in 29 games this season. Something ridiculous. Um, no, in order to answer your question, it will be a failure this year if they don't win a trophy because it's Bayern Munich. And Bayern Munich completely dominate German football every single year. So for him to then come in and not win the Bundesliga, you can completely separate those two things unfortunately for Kane even if maybe Bayern were on the way down um, and some of the other clubs were on the way up anyway Um, but he's there for three years so I fully expect him to win trophies 
um, beyond this season. But like Laura says, it's just a moment in time. Bayern are going through a bit of a blip at the minute. I'll be really, really interested to see what they do with their management situation as well, because I know that their their kind of season's not going as planned this year. But Xavi Alonso, at the biggest rivals in the league, is being highly linked with moving to Liverpool in the summer. They've currently got Tuchel in at the moment by Munich. I just wonder whether they're starting to already think about Tuchel not being the long-term solution at Bayern Munich. Who are the managers out there? Do we try and strike early before Xavi Alonso has chance to agree anything with Liverpool and try and get him in, which A, weakens uh, opposition in the Bundesliga in Bayer Leverkusen, but B, gets one of the more exciting managers uh, in world football at the minute in in there. So I wonder if Liverpool are just a little bit concerned with how Tuchel's doing, that Bayern might try and strike for Xavi Alonso. Yeah, well, Bob, that's the, Bayern well, are basically the Man United of um, Germany, aren't they, in respects to... When Sir Alex Ferguson dominated English football, he basically took the best players from everyone else's team in the league and it, and made them weaker by making United stronger. And that's what Bayern's done time and time again by buying the Dortmund players like Hummels, Goetzer, um, Lewandowski, and buying the best players from Schalke, Bayer Leverkusen, and the rest of them. It's... Bayern are in a bit of a transition. If you look at their, their squad as a whole, they've got players like... Kimmich, Alfonso Davies, um, Thomas Muller, Leroy Sané and Serge Gnabry, all sort of in the last 18 months, two years of their contract. And they're all, they're all kind of either playing for a new deal or looking at maybe their next move, like Kimmich could potentially go to Barcelona. You've got Alfonso Davies reportedly has agreed to join Real Madrid in the summer. Sané and Gnabry, and Gnabry look like they could have their um, their eyes set on new challenges. So they're, they're a club in transition, really. And Harry Kane's probably gone there thinking that they're the complete club. And the reality, if you look sort of like peek behind the curtains a little bit, they were a little bit on their way down anyway. Like I said before, last season, they really shouldn't have won the league. And it was only um, Dortmund's failings that they did win the league, really. So... Interesting times in the managerial sort of um, hot potato stakes. If I was Liverpool, you are right. They, they, they'd have to move early for Xabi Alonso because obviously he's got that connection with Bayern as well. He played there under Pep, didn't he? So. Yeah, he did. So we'll, uh, we'll keep informed on that and see see how that progresses. But I think Bayern will have to turn their league form round and qualify in that Champions League. I don't think Tuchel will be able to afford to let that gap get any bigger or to go out to, to Lazio um, if he wants to keep his job there. Touched on Man United there, Tom. I want to move on to some news that's been sort of breaking over the last couple of days. So Dan Ashworth, currently at Newcastle, being linked with coming in as the sporting director. I've also seen uh, a report from The Athletic that Jason Wilcox, who's at Southampton and someone who one of our original guests on the pod, actually, Alfie, spoke about very highly um, within that Southampton setup, being linked to joining this backroom sort of team that they're assembling, where we've already got that Omar Barada, who's currently on gardening leave from Man City. Just your views on both of them coming in the door. Don't think they'd be the only appointments. And just if Man United are starting to look like they're acting serious off-field, and if that's a a recipe to set up for future on-field success. Well, it certainly is. Like Dan Ashworth has been highly regarded as one of the sort of top executives in football for a long time. He he started out at West Brom, 
um, I think in 2008 or 2007, did a couple years there where he guided them to, or helped, I'm not going to say he obviously helped steer their ship towards Premier League. Then I think he was poached by England and um, he led that kind of um, philosophy of, of all of the English um, teams playing the same style of football, everything joined up and connected, um, which has sort of never been seen before for England, certainly. And obviously we had lots of success um, because of that. When, when you look at the likes of um, the under-17s winning the, the World Cup, it was then the under-21s winning the Euros last summer. Um, since then, he's been to Brighton. Did very well there. We all know how well run that club is. And obviously the last couple of years, he's been at Newcastle where he's sort of, well, I was going to say, you can't really judge. It's too early to judge how well he's done there just for the simple fact he's only been there for two years. But look, getting him in, in as director of football, our sporting director is definitely um, the most impressive well, it's not happened yet, but if it does happen, it'll be definitely the most important signing United make for a long time. Um, when we spoke about Newcastle the, over these last couple years, we've said that their most important signing has been Dan Ashworth because it's so easy for those big state-owned clubs to go and buy the likes of Mourinho or, or Rubinho like Man City did and get things wrong for the first four or five years. But Newcastle seem to, albeit they've struggled a little bit this year, they seem to have had their head screwed on and not blown money up, like not thrown shit at the wall and just blown money up the like without thinking about it. So yeah, Ashworth, very impressive. Hopefully it happens. Don't know about the ins and outs of the compensation or the um the gardening leave situation, but ideally he'd like to start straight away. It seems like usually when when the the David Ornstein's of this world start reporting that um, that Ashworth wants to go, then it will inevitably happen sooner or later because otherwise it will look like Newcastle are holding him hostage. Um, and Wilcox the same really. He, he's very highly thought of. Obviously worked at Man City as their academy director for a long time, but now he's Southampton director of football, which is a step up. The only thing with that, I guess, if he if he does join United, is he will be reporting to Dan Ashworth, which I guess is a step down in terms of job title. But obviously, Man United, no offence and, and no no disrespect to Southampton, but obviously it's a completely different level of club. So, yeah, the interesting times ahead and the fact that they've made that Omar Barada appoint, appointment and potential appointments of, of um, Dan Ashworth and um, Jason Wilcox first before anything else. Um, shows that we mean business and that the tide hopefully is turning on and the tanker is turning on Man United being a successful club once again. But look, there's a long way to go and and it will take time because we are down in the doldrums at the minute. But yeah, exciting times ahead. And Lauro, just on Ashworth, obviously there's been a couple sort of pictures going round of the signings that he made at Brighton and some of the names that have gone on for massive transfer fees. The signings that have come in at Newcastle and some smart recruitment, the likes of Sven Botman, Anthony Gordon, etc. Um, 
from an outsider's point of view, do you think that's a, this looks like a good appointment for United? And one thing that they do get criticised amongst many other things is their recruitment and their scattergun approach. This might lead to a bit smarter recruitment moving forward. Yeah, we're talking about one of the most household names in football now. One of the most sought-after guys you could possibly get. For me, if you pull it off, this will be one of the most exciting and probably important acquisitions since the Alex Ferguson era. I mean, the stuff that he did with the FA, the England DNA rollout that he was integral to, is legacy stuff. I mean, we're still seeing the benefits from that now. Tomo talked about the youth teams winning the trophies, but... Since he, I think he was there 2012 to 2018. Since then, we've been to a quarterfinal, semi-final, final, and we're going to go into Euro 2024 as the favourites. And our best player is a 19, 20-year-old in Jude Bellingham. So even before you look at what he's done in the recruitment and the strategy side of clubs like Brighton and Newcastle, where maybe he hasn't had the autonomy he thought he was going to, but it still made some really good strides from where they were a couple of years ago. He's been fantastic and he is as good as you can possibly get. So if he can't do it and translate his successes and operate at a level that he has been doing at Man United, no one can. But if I was a fan, a Red Devils fan right now, I'd be so, so happy over the moon that that guy looks to be on his way in. Because that means the whole structure, the strategies, the recruitment, everything off the pitch that has been pretty diabolical for the last decade or more will have a reverse in fortunes and that will start bearing success because it has done for England and it has done for Brighton and it even has done for Newcastle to a lesser extent so can't speak highly enough about him and um, all I know about Jason Wilcox is that he was a little bit of a cult hero at Leeds used to come in when Lee Bowie was injured in the early 2000s and he was a nippy little winger so uh, yeah good to see Jason doing well but I can't um, lie I don't know an awful lot know an awful lot about what he's done at Southampton but I'm sure it's uh, good stuff. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that some of the figures that are being muted were sort of 6 million to start with, then might be up to 10 million. United have to potentially pay more if they want him to not serve a gardening leave, which I think at Newcastle set at towards a, a year to go to a rival. But if you think for the fees that players go for nowadays, that is really small money, isn't it? If that's going to be one of the most important signings for Man United off field, if it helps to inform all the other on field mistakes, when you think about the money we spent on Sancho, the money we spent on Anthony, some of the other panic buys we've had to do in the grand scheme of things, paying to get him through the door and confirming him and proving to him that we want him by paying that fee up front uh, could be massive for Man United and shouldn't um, shouldn't be a blocker for it, I don't think, just because it's a non-player uh, spend. No, I agree. It would be one of the most important things you do in the last decade. Absolutely getting through the door, even it cost you 20 million. You know what, that, that's actually a weird thing before we move on. That, I find that a, such a weird thing about modern football is rarely, like you, you don't mind spending like hundreds of millions of pounds on players, but rarely do you see um, clubs paying more than, like basically paying more than their contract amount or their compensation amount, say three, four, five million for a manager or for a sporting director. And the reality of the situation is that a sporting director and a manager is probably more important than any one player. Yet Neymar costs 222 million and Dan Ashworth might cost 10 million. Do you know what yes. I mean? And who's more it important? Yeah, it's an interesting point, actually. Think about City. If you were to say to them what's been the most sort of influential signing of the last decade, people would say like Haaland or KDB or, or names like that. But actually, why isn't it Pep Guardiola or one of the kind of 
people in the back room that make it happen. And therefore, if Guardiola is in the middle of a contract and a club wants to speak to him about taking the job, why don't managers have offers of the fees that you see for players if it's that important to a a club and maybe maybe teams are starting to wise up to that which might be why they've got clause in their staff's contracts that there's higher compensation fees but as I say in the grand scheme of things for where Man United have got to and the money they waste on sign-ins to bring someone in with that kind of knowledge for circa 10 million seems like a no-brainer to me. That's the evolution of football though isn't it? I mean, 10, 10 years ago or before, you never would have seen anything like it. But you look at the successes of Brighton and even Brentford and probably Newcastle now and teams going forward. Players, like you said, talking about Neymar or Haaland, these players will only be there once, so they're worth their fee. But Dan Ashworth, can his job is to find the next Haaland, De Bruyne, and keep doing it for generations and generations to come, at the same time as putting a strategy in place that brings back a little bit of an identity to the backroom staff at Man United and the way that you look to push forward so it's worth it's worth its weight in gold and I think we'll probably see more and more high fees for positions like that than we have in the past as time progresses because it's the way forward and it's clearly working. Just one example as well to call out from Ashworth's time I remember Man United um, there was a a Tim Vickery update on Sky Sports News who does the uh, South America and there was an update about a midfielder that we wanted to sign um, from Ecuador was going to cost like 4.5 million and that was Moise Saicedo and in the end he ended up going to Brighton and Ashworth kind of constructed that deal got him in Brighton have gone on to sell him for what 100 plus million and if United had done that gone through with that thought that was a shrewd bit of business to do then potentially we wouldn't have then gone and had to have spent 70 80 million on Casemiro or other sign-ins and that sort of thing there might be a slight different way of looking at it that sometimes at Man United you need to buy the sort of finished article but if you get your playing squad into a position where that doesn't need to be the case then you can make these four five ten million pound sign-ins from from obscure leagues and suddenly then you're building you're buying players in cheap developing them and bringing them into the first team rather than these 80 90 million pound fees so yeah I'm absolutely buzzing if we can get him in yeah, and if you look at Man City, they do that now with the City Football Group, which I know it's not not very ethical or moral in my opinion, but they they buy loads of young talent from around the world, and then they'll loan them to Twa, their French club, or they'll put or they'll put them on loan to Girona, or, or stick them in their Brazilian club for two years, and then when they're ready to play for City, they'll play for City. Like just in the last couple of weeks, they've just signed that um, that Savio, haven't they? Who's Really impressed for Girona um, this season, but he's a player who play who's contracted to Troyes, who's a French club who also is under the bracket of um, City Football Group. So that's, I guess, that's the way football's going, and potentially that's that's what it will be for United. And yeah, Dan Ashworth's obviously got a, a long history of um, making good, smart acquisitions that. Um, and not only good for you in the short term, medium term, but also long term as well. You can absolutely guarantee United are going down that route. I saw on one of the articles I was reading about Ashworth earlier that there's going to be someone who's going to sit basically outside the Man United board, but on the Ineos sporting board, which will be how do we build a sporting relationship between Man United and Nice, who are in that sort of Jim Ratcliffe ownership as well. So, you know, if you can start to build the connection there, you've suddenly got the French club, other clubs around the globe will start joining a 
united group like you've got a city group if united get serious over the the coming years i'd imagine where does it stop where does it stop it will just be in like 40 years time when we're all gray and old um we will just be watching football where there'll be there's like five mega billionaire trillionaires who own all of the clubs it's just it's just going just be evolution again won't it suddenly that will be the standard where everyone's using the data and analytics that clubs are using everyone's got their football group set up and it's like what is the bits in the future that haven't been thought of yet that football clubs are doing to be on top so that's um that's gonna be the evolution of the game boys move on to uh, another premier league club crystal palace so Laura, if news is to be believed, looks like Roy Hodgson's set to leave Crystal Palace. We had a debate on one of a previous pods about bringing in the likes of Steve Cooper or Graham Potter with Premier League experience, trying to build this more progressive football, something that the fans can enjoy. Looks like they're going for someone outside of England, though, a chap called Oliver Glasner, who I must admit I didn't know too much about before reading a bit earlier that he led Frankfurt to the Europa League. But looks like Palace are set to pull the trigger and, and try and start a new era. Yeah, sounds like a disaster. I mean, I've not heard of him either. I know he had a good a good season at Frankfurt or whatever. They won the Europa League, did they, or the or the conference? But yeah, you know, when we were talking about pulling the trigger on Hodgson, so to speak, a few weeks ago, I didn't mean to replace him with a relatively unknown or an inexperienced coach that hasn't been in England before um, and experienced the Premier League or the Championship or anything like that. So. I think that's a major risk for a, for a club that's kind of treading water and is at a bit of a crossroads as to whether they start sinking a little bit or whether they push on. I hope they know what they're doing. Um, look, maybe they do. Maybe Steve Parrish has got a little bit more um, knowledge of the foreign manager scene than maybe I'm giving him credit for. But oh, he's had some. They've had some stinkers in the past, Crystal Palace, haven't they? And if if they get this one wrong, they could end up in the Championship in double quick time. So, yeah, I think Hodgson should should probably um, be seeing his time at Crystal Palace come to an end. But I think there's much more suitable candidates on the market that probably are attainable than um, than this geezer. Yeah, I was having a look actually. That Oliver Glasner, he um, he's been linked with a Bayern job because obviously Thomas Tuchel. Um, I guess his future is a little bit up in the air because of their downturn in form recently. He's obviously highly thought of in Germany, um, but I had a look at his his um, win percentage at Frankfurt, and it's like thirty nine percent. So even though they had some good cups cup success in, in Europe, in the league, couldn't have been unbelievable. Although, um, well, I, I was going to say they must have qualified for the Champions League, but they qualified for the Champions League through winning the Europa League. So. It does always seem like a bigger risk when you're employing um, a foreign manager who's not had that experience. But like for every um, sort of fail, failed foreign manager, there's a Pochettino who comes in and and lights it up. So Palace will hope that this Glasner fella does that. Just just looking at his CV, just to give a bit of a other side of the coin about positives, is that. Um, in 2019 was appointed at Wolfsburg, qualified for Europe in both seasons for them. In 2021 went and got the Frankfurt job, won the Europa Conference League in his first season and then led them to Champions League knockout stages in his second and final season as well. Sounds like they parted ways in the summer when he was still uh, under contract and maybe he was thinking his stock was at a, 
a time where he could go and get a bigger job than that. It's not worked out for whatever reason. So for a positive spin for Crystal Palace fan, they might think that they're getting a very decent manager in who's potentially just short of an offer or two at a level that he thinks he can be at. So it might be yeah, a positive. But, but this Crystal Palace job, um, apparently he's getting offered £4 million a year. So, okay, Crystal Palace to the likes of us three aren't the elite level, but the pre- any any club in the Premier League these days is elite level and it's four million quid a year, which he, he, he would not have been earning anywhere near that at Frankfurt. Um, but like you just said, Murph, it does sound like he's got a pretty good CV. So I'll, if he does get appointed, I'll be really interested to see um, the effect he has on the team and whether he can sort of move them forward because we've always said, well, Palace have been a strong... Um, stable Premier League club over the last 10 years and they're sort of what's the word I'm looking that they're they're just floating about in that that no man's lands between sort of 10th and 15th 10th and 16th every year so maybe this is the guy that could finally move them forward and become a, a top 10 challenger I've seen Lauren listen to talk sport a little bit I know Simon Jordan's always quite vocal with his previous uh, relationships with Crystal Palace, but the the fans seem a bit on edge about Steve Parrish and the direction of the club. Anyway, I see they have some protests sometimes. Apparently, he's wanting to prioritise funds into a new stand or extending a stand as opposed to on field decisions and things like that. But I guess for Palace fans, must be a bit of nervousness that it's Parrish making this decision if they're not entirely comfortable with the direction he's leading the club. No, and. The way that you do get them comfortable with the way that you lead them the club is results on the pitch. It's the same everywhere, isn't it? And I just don't think that Crystal Palace probably see this move. Uh, look, they they want. I've, I I listened to it on the radio today. They were talking about it, and they had Palace fans on basically just saying we're bored of the football. And we're, it, we're at the end of the day, we're going to end up sinking if we don't do something soon. But it's just what you do. And like you say, if you've got a guy in command that doesn't have your trust to go and appoint the right guy to move the club forward, then it's nervous times. And then that nervous times turns into nervous energy within the stadium. And then all of a sudden, Palace players are under a lot of pressure to not give the ball away in the first 10 seconds. Otherwise, they're under the cost from their own fans. And then every game becomes really, really difficult to win. And all of a sudden, all that pressure goes in the downwards trajectory and you're in the championship. Now, I know that's a a little bit of a grim picture for the Eagles, but I just... I, I. I just think it's another one that sounds like he's set up to fail coming in at this stage of the season. I mean, if it was in the summer where you had a bit of time to come in, put your own sort of stamp on things, maybe bring your own players in, but we're past all the transfer windows and Palace are in a precarious position whereby they've got a team that isn't playing scintillating football. The fans aren't necessarily happy with that or the owner and you've got to come in and try and turn things around. Um, Yeah, I'm concerned. And more long-term for him as well, if he does come in and keep Palace up this year, they got that five-point gap. Um, he'll probably have to then start a new Premier League campaign without Eze and Elise, who are both being linked with moves away from the club. And they've got a little bit of a turnover. We touched before on Wilfred Zaha's left the club. There might be interest in Mark Gay, a couple of their other players, especially if Eze and Elise go. It sounds like it could be a real difficult job for him next year as well. But we'll uh, we'll wait and see how that one pans out. Tomo, just before we move on to the Premier League action, I just want to touch on the news that's 
broken in the last hour or so about Kylian Mbappe. So it looks like he's finally told PSG, although I'm sure he said this a couple of other times and you turned and signed a new deal. It sounds like he's finally said to PSG that this will be his last season with the club and he'll be looking to go on uh, in the summer. Just A, reflection on, on that news, but B, do you think it's only Real Madrid that he could go to? Do you think there's any left field options potentially you might see him in the Prem? Um, so A... I'm glad it's over, to be honest, because it's the longest, most boring transfer saga of all time. And actually, quite frankly, I, I think quite sad because Kylian Mbappe is no doubt the best player on the planet right now. But he's 25 and he's never played his football outside of League 1, which is a crying shame. And I don't want to I don't want to be disrespectful to that league because obviously he is a French lad. He is from Paris, so it means a lot to him pl- to play for that club. But someone of his standing and his level should be playing in the Premier League or should be playing at one of the top two clubs in La Liga. And he should have been doing it since he was 18. I was surprised that he signed for him for £180 when he was 18, seven years ago, um, just because he had the world at his feet then. Uh, Look... I'm not going to sit here and say, look, he's not, he's, he's pissed away his career for the last seven years because obviously he's done unbelievable things, including won the World Cup and nearly won the World Cup single handedly for France last year. So I'm just glad it's over, to be honest, because it's just eternally boring um, when a player of his calibre just flirts with the idea of leaving every year. It was almost every six months um, in the last couple of years. Um, on to where he will go. It's, I think it's quite clear that he's going to go to Real Madrid. I would love to see him in the Premier League, but I just don't think um, I just don't think any club right now has the capacity. Like the the clubs that have been mentioned um, from from Miguel Delaney, the independent journalist, was that last year he was offered to both Arsenal and Liverpool, in which, which would be very interesting. But apparently, both clubs said that. They were unable to break their financial structure just for that one, um, that one player because obviously they would have to pay him like one million pound a week, which is ridiculous. So, and we were just speaking on off air. The 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 funny thing about these elite level players, and when I mean elite level, I mean like top one or two players in the world, is that they're so expensive and so good that really they only have one or two clubs that they could ever join. It's a similar when Messi left Barcelona. It was only ever going to be PSG or Man City because those two are state-owned, money's not an object, and they can go and afford to pay him £2 million a week or whatever ridiculous salary he will have. So, yeah, but I'm glad he's leaving PSG because I'm glad I'm, I'm, it'll be interesting to see where his next move is and how he'll do in La Liga with um, Real Madrid. And also, it makes Real Madrid a little bit more interesting because arguably they've got the best left winger in the world already in Vinny Jr. And now they're going to sign Mbappe, who I would suggest his best position is just off that left. But obviously they'll make it work because they're both world-class players. But it's interesting to see um, how he fits in there and and, and obviously how, how well he plays with Jude Bellingham as well from an English standpoint. Well, he's being touted... Vinny Jr. is the one who might have to make way to make the financial package of Mbappe work. Now, where he would end up going from there, I don't know Vinny Jr. 
Um, but I wonder whether if he's staying, whether Mbappe is going to be playing through the middle because they've had to play Bellingham in false nine or like Rodrigo through there. So it might yeah, be but, that it's. Oh, I was just going to say, but that, and that that makes complete sense. Um, apart from the fact that Mbappe said on numerous occasions that he doesn't want to play number nine. He's not a number nine. He wants to play yeah. either, either just off the likes of Olivier Drude, like he does for France, or off the left. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, sorry to butt in on you there. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens next year if they do play together. Um, yeah. Maybe Haaland to Real Madrid in the not-too-distant future and then Mbappe to, to City as a left-field one. Yeah. It's, um, look, it's, in- it's interesting. It's always, it's always sort of um, interesting when, when top players like this leave clubs because the whole dynamic of the world football changes because Real Madrid signed this player, um, Mbappe, which means they might sell the likes of Rodrigo or Vinny Jr. to help fund it. PSG are obviously going to replace Mbappe. They're, they're going to want to buy someone like Osserman or, um, well, Xavi Simons already contracted a club, but like they'll want to, even maybe Rashford. So the whole status or the whole like um, Ferris wheel of, of world football is just about to change this summer just because of that one move. So it makes things a lot more interesting. Yeah, definitely. And really interesting as well that this time it's on a free transfer where he's run his contract down. So what does he command financially per week where we've well, seen players running their contracts down to say, you know, like to Martial, slightly lesser extent than Mbappe, but running his contract down so he can say, you've not paid a transfer fee for me, so give me it in wages. What on earth does yeah. Mbappe command a week? Well, what's interesting as well, because I, it's basically, I think he'll be paid the similar wages to the, the top um, Real Madrid earners like the Jude Bellingham's of this world but he will be paid also on top of that apparently 120 million euro signing on fee which yeah so it's all well and good these players running down their contracts and clubs thinking okay I'll get away with not not shelling out for this massive fee but you end up paying the player the fee in the end instead of the club so I'm not really sure Real Madrid are saving too much money by um, by getting him on a free transfer, a technical free transfer, but they'll have to pay him massive wages, like you said. And on top of that, apparently 120 million euros signing on fee, which is it's, it's good work if you can get it, I suppose. Boys, let's move on to the Premier League then. Um, so title contenders... Man City, Liverpool, Arsenal all in action. So, Laurie, Man City host Chelsea, Liverpool go to Brentford and Arsenal go to Burnley. Just firstly, any potential shocks that you see from any of those games, but also just want to get your FPL plans around those teams as well, because I know Man City and Liverpool are both in double game week action. Well, Brentford did the double over Man City last season. I know they lost last week, but there's always an odd result with them um, on the cards, there's absolutely no chance of. Um, is it Burnley? I oh, know Luton. Actually, Luton had a pretty decent game against Liverpool earlier on in the season, didn't they? I think it was a late Luis Diaz equaliser. So they've shown that they can mix it with the big boys. And Arsenal, sorry, Arsenal got Burnley. That's the one where there's absolutely no chance for that upset because 
Burnley are fast becoming the worst team I think I've ever seen in the Premier League, other than the famous Derby one. So, <laughs> yeah, there, there might be a couple of um, there might be a couple of weird ones, but no, I think it's all about the triple captains on fantasy football this week, isn't it? But I'm keeping the cards close to my chest because I've got a uh, I've got a bit a bit of a wager um, with someone who takes very close interest into what I do and tries to get ahead and then mimic me so he can stay ahead. So I won't be uh, I won't be saying anything, but. Uh, other than the fact that yes, I'm looking at triple captain in Kyle Walker. <laughs> Would love to see it. I remember someone triple captain John Stones once in a double game week, and I think he scored a brace and had a couple of clean sheets. And then I think Tomo, you famously triple captain Sadio Mane, didn't you? He got injured in the first game, missed the second, and you got three points for your TC. Yeah, so I I, I don't think I'll be putting out any FPL. Uh advice for anyone because the only advice would be just to completely ignore what I do or do the opposite. The guy that captained John Stones, I think was a guy that um, affectionately is known on Twitter as the real Otter UK. And uh, it does tempt me because if you can, if you can find the double game week on a defender, like a John Stones, you'll score the goals. They get six points. So they get more for the goals. They're probably going to get the clean sheets um, the only problem is with Erling Haaland is you wouldn't put it past him scoring seven and then you're just miles and miles and miles behind if he does that and it doesn't even seem like like Erling Haaland scoring a hat-trick is like a normal player scoring one goal. It's just like normal. So it's a bit boring, but it's got to be Haaland really. Yeah, I saw Statman Dave um, was on the, the fantasy show with Chris Sutton and he was like, it's just a tap-in to have... Erling Haaland in two home games for Man City as your triple captain. And I think there'll be a lot of that. But uh, there might be a few left field ones. I think if Salah was still out, Liverpool have got a couple fixtures as well in Brentford. And I think Chelsea, the other one that people might have gone for Jot of the Slaughter or Louise or something like that. I think Chris Sutton said go as a differential, go for Darwin Nunes, yeah. uh, which I'm not sure is the best advice. Well, I don't know. They, they haven't got Chelsea. Liverpool got Brentford and Luton. So their fixtures oh, are Luton, okay. But Chelsea, um, I think Man City got Chelsea, haven't they? Yeah, Man City got Chelsea and then Brentford. Liverpool fixtures are better. It's just that Haaland's Ooh, like okay. fixture proof, isn't it? Even if it's Chelsea, he'll score a brace. There's no, there's no difference in him playing Chelsea or Luton. Really, he'll score a brace as a standard, won't he? He scores more goals than he plays games. So um, it's more about picking the the off weeks for Haaland, but it's just a massive risk. Yeah, the, I mean, you you're right. Harlem fixture proof. We've spoke about the defenders there. We said about Stones and you've said about Carl Walker. Another one potentially, Nathan Ake. I believe uh, Garvidal is out for a couple of weeks. So Ake will likely play in that left back position. But you can just already see you'd check the team news and Nathan Ake's on the bench and they've played Rico Lewis there. Yeah. Like that painter and decorator what, Angelo will just be back at left back and you'll be like, how, how that happen? <laughs> I'll tell you what's a good shout is um, bringing in Connor Bradley because Trent's just um, recurred his knee injury again. So he's out for a few weeks. So why are you shaking your head? Because Robertson's back, which means Gomez won't play left back and uh, he'll play right back instead. And Connor Bradley, you'll just be left thinking, what on earth have I done? Right. Okay. Well, there you go. Either take my advice or ignore it. Well, you just you just suggested to ignore it, so we'll stick with that one. And then, Tomo, just briefly touch on the race for top four. Tottenham home to Wolves, Villa go to Fulham, United at Luton. I think, I know 
most of the Prem games that we've watched of Kenilworth Road have felt uh, a little bit like an FA Cup tie. But just with it being United at Kenilworth Road, 4.30 on a Sunday, just feels like it's going to be like a cup tie. Luton are going to be so up for it. And I don't know why, but that, that fixture really panics me for United. Well, Luton have have played quite well at home. Um, I think they pushed Man City quite far, pushed Arsenal quite far, got a draw against Liverpool. They were they were very poor, um, admittedly, against Sheffield United last week. But this is their bread and butter, where they're like massive underdogs, and it's like a, a game of a lifetime for their players. That's when they really. Um, raise their levels I guess and actually if you I know Man United have turned a corner in terms of results and Rasmus Hoyland's back like banging in the goal so we have seemed to have turned a corner but the individual performances weren't as um, promising or as convincing as maybe we've all made them out to be so I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Luton went and did a job and then all of a sudden Eric Tan Hag's under massive pressure again. Um, so, yeah, that would be an interesting game. And like you say, proper FA Cup feel to it. That, that, the way I, or the way we describe it, it's almost a little bit patronising to Luton because of like, but, and I don't want to be because they, they're a really good addition to the Premier League this season. So um, that would be a really good game to watch. Can I just offer some advice? Um, yeah, I think Man United and Spurs um, have actually been let know now. But Sergio Regulon actually plays for Brentford, and he's been appearing in like a left wing position, and he's high, um, and he's getting into some really dangerous positions, and he's four point four million. So maybe not this week because he's playing City and Liverpool, but after that, he'll be a really cheap. Um, I think, defender slash attacking option to come into your team and pick up some points. So I think I'm allowed to say that now. I think I think Man United have been told. <laughs> yeah, good good piece of advice that, especially with Tony back, whipping some balls in. Might be playing up higher, get some assists, but also if Brentford keep a clean sheet, that'd be a great option when you get a defender who plays a bit higher up. So um yeah, a couple of tips there, boys. Bring in Connor Bradley and Sergio Regulon into your fantasy teams and triple captain Harland at all costs. Let's move on to the EFL. Tomo, finally, after many, many weeks and many, many pods, Southampton have lost uh, the Premier Pod Cup. I shouldn't sound as happy as I am because it has been a great run, but went to Bristol City this week after surviving a scare against Huddersfield and lost 3-1. And now Bristol City are our Premier Pod Cup holders. Yeah, so, look, fair play. It was always going to happen eventually. It just felt like over the last couple of weeks that it might not happen this season. Um, But yeah, 25 games unbeaten. You can't really grumble if you're a Southampton fan, okay? They were were a little bit poor on the night. Um, But what can you do? 25 games unbeaten. You're always going to run into a side that just play their hearts out. And um, it's just not quite clicking for you. So they they lost that game three one, and now we're all Robins fans. Yeah, indeed. Be really interested to see um, how Bristol City fare. Loro, geographically a club close to us. Just briefly touched on air, uh, off air. Sorry about the relationship with Yeovil. Obviously, a club that sometimes send us some players on loan now were there previous fixtures that we had against them where we crossed over in the same league? Uh, Just a little bit on on games that we've played against them and league positions. 
Well, the, obviously, they're only up the road from Yeovil, aren't they? So there's always been an affinity between the two clubs and a, a little bit of a rivalry, although obviously Bristol have got their own same city derby. Um, back in 2005, I think it was, they took Gary and Lee... Jo- oh, no, no, they didn't. They took Gary Johnson from us. Lee Johnson went to Hearts before going there, um, who was obviously our most successful manager ever. Um <laughs> Funnily enough, though, actually in 2014, no, 13, when we got promoted to the championship, Bristol City found themselves in the league below us, um, alongside Sheffield United, Brentford and Wolves, if if you can believe wow. that. You were in, in the league above all of them. Wolves actually ended up having to, to loan us Wayne Hennessy because he wanted to play at a higher level. Um, but yeah, back to Bristol City. They do send us some decent loans now. I mean... A club like Yeovil are a little bit in the middle of nowhere. So having like the likes of Bristol City, Bournemouth, um, Southampton kind of nearby obviously helps us out and we can take some loans off them. But hopefully it won't be too long until we're back up mixing with all these boys. Because, I mean, Bristol City being one, but I mean, like even Bournemouth who are in the Premier League, that's probably my most visited away ground for Yeovil. We were in the leagues with them for years and years. And uh, look where we are now. But football can change very, very quickly. So well done to the Robins, but... I reckon Yeovil will be back up near you soon. Looking forward to seeing. They've got a little uh, mini run going of a couple games uh, now, Bristol City, and they're actually only four points outside the playoffs. They're in 11th, but they're only three points behind Sunderland and then four points behind Preston, Hull, Norwich and Coventry, who are all on 48. So if they can put a bit of a run together like Southampton in the Premier League Cup, we could see Bristol City in uh, the playoffs and imagine having a Premier League uh, club that close to us. Yeah, I think what you just said there, though, is true for pretty much every team in the championship, isn't it? It just seems like if you lose a couple of games, the manager will get sacked. If you win a couple of games, you're in the playoffs. And those that, that, sixth, that sixth place in the championship is changing hands so often at the moment. It's really, really difficult to call. So um, someone will come out of the pack and do it, but it's about consistency. That's the hardest thing in the championship. It's really, really hard to master. Um, Daniel Farker's done it, seven in a row for Leeds, but... Uh, and obviously Leicester will run away with it. But other than that, it's really, really difficult to keep ahead of steam. So it's about hitting form at the right time. And if you can do it between now and April, you probably will find yourself in and amongst it. So I'm not sure if that'll be Bristol City this season. They're sort of one of those teams that seem to be one really good game, one really bad one. They were terrible against us literally 10 days ago. Um, and then they go and beat Southampton, which I do think I called on the last pod, by the way. But um, yeah, I think there's slightly, slightly better teams that maybe have a little bit more than City this season. Am I right in saying, Laura, you went to an event at Ashton Gate, which might not have been football, but you were up there and said it had the feel of like a Prem type of setup there. Did you go watch a concert or something there recently? <laughs> no, it was Burnley v Bristol City. Um, so you can call it a concert if you want. <laughs> it was a bit of a procession. Yes. Burnley had already won the league. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, obviously I've got a friend who's a Burnley fan. We had a bit of a corporate hospitality day there, but it was brilliant. Yeah, you walked into Ashton Gate and it felt like you were at Glastonbury, basically. It had a proper big feel about it. Um, they had a sports bar there, which the thing I liked about this sports bar, right, the screen was the size of the bar. And I, I mean, I don't know what it was in metres, but it was absolutely huge. It was like half a football pitch. And the bar was the same length with a really good number of staff on it. So you weren't queuing for ages. You were just up and back. And I just thought, these guys get it. So the infrastructure's there. The stadium is lovely. The corporate hospitality is fantastic. The pitch is nice. It's a big city that I don't think I've had a Premier League. It must be the biggest city not to have a Premier League team, actually, Bristol. So everything's there. And they've just been trying to find the right ingredients and recipe to get themselves up to the um, the top tier. And uh, maybe they've got it in Manning as the manager. 
apologies for some reason i had kaiser chiefs in my head that you were at ashton gate watching so if anyone's asked you uh, about your time at Ashton Gate watching Kaiser Chiefs and you looked at them blankly. That's uh, due to me. I don't know where I've got that from. Just go back to Southampton, uh, Lauro. So they've got Friday night football against West Brom. I want you to quickly touch on that if that's another fixture you earmark for them to drop some points. And then if you can move on to Leeds' 4-0 demolition against Swansea, because I know you were waxing lyrical about that display. And then just 12.30 on Saturday, you've got Plymouth. Um, we've had the FA Cup tie there recently as well. So just if you see a bit of a more of a point swing over the course of the weekend. That was a lot of questions. Uh, I think the first one was West <laughs> Brom, Southampton, Friday night football. I don't think West Brom have lost a football match since before COVID. Uh, they just win every week and stay fifth in the league. So, yeah, I expect West Brom to win that game. They're having a really good season, the Baggies, but I think they only get two points for a win. Um, so, difficult times for them, but he's doing a really good job there, Carlos Corboran, and we know who... Uh, we know whose school he graduated from before taking over at Huddersfield and now West Brom. So well done to the Baggies. You got yourself a good setup there. And they're almost guaranteed the playoffs now. Leeds were brilliant on Tuesday against Swansea, but I have to say the Swansea defending, and I, I don't want to, you know, this isn't a Luke Williams jive. It's just saying it how I see it. We've played a lot of teams and made them look pretty poor this season, but the Swansea backline, it was, I mean, talk about sixes and sevens. This was 11 and 12. It was absolutely diabolical. Every time we played a pass forward, we seemed to be two on one and uh, we made full advantage of it. This time um, increased our goal difference. I think one plus 33. Now this season, we're scoring lots and lots of goals. Willie Nonto's hit real form as well. And uh, just more of the same for Leeds, seven in a row. We're second in the league now properly. And um, I think we're looking ominous. Like I said the other day, we've got Daniel Farker at the helm. He's won the championship twice before. He's got the experience. We've hit form. Um, Our centre-back partnership, by the way, we've won our last seven games, six clean sheets, one one goal conceded uh, with with the Welsh centre-back partnership of Ampadu and Joe Rodon. So just little partnerships all over the field that are forming brilliantly. Um, since Ampadu's dropped back, we've got the the German lad or the guy that came from uh, German team, Gruev, who's just been absolutely fantastic. And probably one of my favourite and underrated signings of the season, Glenn Kamara, who is just, I hate this expression, but just a Rolls Royce in there. Fantastic player with presence, but he's nimble. He plays the ball well. He's quick, agile, and uh, just a joy to watch and knitting everything together in there for Leeds. So, if anyone um, doesn't want to watch the early kickoff in the Prem on Saturday, I'd advise you watching Leeds v Plymouth because they're sure to be goals. And uh, I think we spoke about Leeds Plymouth the other day. We played them in the FA Cup, bought our best players on a one-four-one, and I I predict more of the same. Good stuff. Thanks, and thanks for remembering all three questions there. Tomo Ipswich won at Millwall four nil as well on Wednesday. Obviously Leeds um, picking up pace. Southampton have been doing really well. Leicester obviously flying as well. Ipswich been going in the opposite direction, but a bit of character and spirit there to go and win four nil at Millwall and just turn the tide a bit. Yeah, very important win. Um, I've, I've been saying over the last couple of weeks that actually they've been playing quite well, and just individual mistakes have just caught. They've been caught out there. Um, and it seems like, obviously, exactly the same against Millwall, except everything went for them. And obviously, it was nice to see Kiefer Moore get a goal again. And that um, El Hamadi, who we spoke a lot about, I think got his first goal for the club. Um, he's got a bright future ahead of him after joining from Wimbledon in January. So, yeah, onwards and upwards. Hopefully, they'll 
be looking to build a bit more momentum now because they're still only, although they've had this bad run, they're still only one point behind Southampton in third and two points behind Leeds. So they're still in it. Yeah, definitely. And just a couple of other points on the championship before we move on, boys. The first one I just want to touch on is the goal in the whole game from uh, Philogene. I've seen something uh, recently, Tomo, which is an account basically saying that he's now been credited with the goal after it was initially given as an own goal. And someone tweeted saying this goal has been given by the EFL because a couple of big uh, football accounts have said he's won the Puskas Award already, which I know Footy Tweet did, and also Pyramid Pod put a video of the goal out. So I think uh, Philogene's got you to thank for the uh, getting that goal uh, credited to him. So uh, nice touch from you. But what a uh, couple bits of skill and finish that was, albeit maybe an own goal. Yeah, I, I don't want to put a damper damp in the mood on that goal because it was unbelievable, but it does look like it's an own goal. From, <laughs> it's from very one much angle, an own goal. Did, yeah, it just looks like he's he's done the Rabona cross and a defender's headed it in. So I I can't believe they've given that goal to him. But but look, each to their own. Um, good luck to him. Unbelievable goal. Great finish. We spoke a little bit about him, didn't we? Saying how he's a bit of a YouTube highlights player. Looks very talented. So um, he's definitely got that in the locker. Just I don't want to piss on anyone's fireworks, but or piss on anyone's parade, but it's an own goal. A couple of people I saw on Twitter said they're the, he's the best player they've seen in the championship this season, which might just be a bit from that goal itself. But, Laura, you, um, Leeds played whole, see anything from him or seen anything in games on TV or anything that, that would back that claim up, that he's one of the top championship players? I don't think... Uh, oh, there's a lot of very good players in the championship. I think he's a standout player for Hull. Um, but I think he'd need to do a little bit more consistently to be up there with the likes of Cree Somerville, for example, who I think is the best player in the championship. So I think there's levels to this game. Um, but when you're a team like Hull and you're scoring goals like that, you're going to grab the headlines, aren't you? And uh, fair play to him. Very good goal the other night. But work to do. Then just finally, Huddersfield won 1-0 against Sunderland. And similar to the West Brom theory you've got, Lauro, um, I saw a tweet earlier that Sunderland lose every single game 1-0 but have never not been one point off the playoffs, which is just so true as well. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, great win for Huddersfield. And actually, obviously, Darren Moore's left Huddersfield. He's now at Port Vale. And uh, a fan of the pod and a friend messaged in, uh, basically saying to put £20 on a manager called Andre Brightonwriter to get the job and to check what the odds were um, and to keep the information close to our chest because it wasn't well known. I looked on Skybet and he was one to three on to win the job. So £20 returns £26.66. So um, I'm not sure it was that closely guarded, to be honest. And looks like that's a bit of a, uh, a certainty, but massive win that for Huddersfield. And if this uh, manager comes in and can offer a bit, for them, then uh, hopefully that will be enough to pull them away from the uh, trouble at the bottom, which is now a five-point gap. Just quick, just quickly on on his last um, managerial role, he, he last was sacked this time last year by Hoffenheim, um, and he left them three points above the relegation zone in the Bundesliga. Doesn't sound great, does it? <laughs> let's let's move on to League One: uh, Portsmouth Derby, Bolton, all one midweek. Barnsley and Stevenage dropped points. Uh, the Peterborough game got cooled off. So, yeah, a bit of a, a momentum shift there for Portsmouth Derby. Bolton against the surrounding sides. 
Bolton versus Charlton this weekend. Charlton haven't won since November, though. Uh, obviously, Nathan Jones in there, but they desperately need a new manager bouncing soon there. Um, I saw that Ian Everett's done his pre-match press conference today or confirmed that uh, Dion Charles, the Bolton strikers, picked up a knee injury and going to be out for a few weeks. But Charlton desperately need a week there, but uh, a win there. But I'm not sure Bolton's the place they want to be going to get it. Derby versus Stevenage, which is second versus seventh. Uh, obviously, Derby in the automatic promotion picture now um, and Stevenage in seventh. They did lose at the weekend against Bristol Rovers. But yeah, Derby be looking to continue their recent form. And then Portsmouth versus Reading, which on the face of it is just a Portsmouth home win. But Reading haven't lost in six now and neither of Portsmouth. They're first and fifth in the form table and a bit of a turnaround there for Reading. So what was initially looking like a home banker might be a slightly more difficult fixture for Portsmouth. Sean. Just, just, just quickly. Go on. I just want to, I just want to bring up the fact that Cheltenham won again, and yep. um, that so now they beat Blackpool two 0 and they they're playing Port Vale at home at the weekend, which is another really, really winnable fixture. Um, so they're three points off the, the they're three points off safety now, which is Charlton, and they've got two games in hand on them. I was actually. I was getting confused because I thought I'd called Bristol City the Robins because I knew the Cheltenham were called the Robins as well, but they're both nicknamed the Robins. Correct. Yeah, you weren't wrong. Yeah, so there we go. Can I ask you a question? You can indeed. Um, Do you boys think the Portsmouth fans are okay now? Do you remember they were were in dire straits, weren't they, about six six weeks ago? (laughs) Do you remember that? They were yeah. really, they were really struggling. I think they were in like first place, as they have been every single <laughs> week of the season, getting on people like Colby Bishop's backs. Do you remember that? They weren't happy with the manager, the brand new manager that was playing football last season, that's come in and guided them to currently six points clear at the top of the league. I think I caused called for a little bit of calm there and a little bit of uh, rationale, and uh, looks like it's paid off because guess what? Portsmouth are still top. Thank God the yeah. Portsmouth owners listened to this podcast. Yeah, that's what yeah, I was Yeah, otherwise they would have done something really, really stupid. But yeah, <laughs> uh, unbeaten in six now, Portsmouth. Um, they are six points clear at the top, albeit Bolton and Derby have got games in hand. But as we've spoken about on previous pods, points in the bank over games in hand every day of the week. So they uh, look set to go up automatically, Portsmouth. We will now move on to League Two, boys. Want to touch on an absolutely crazy game midweek. Mansfield 9, Harrogate 2. Tomo, have you ever seen 9-2 in a professional football game before? No. No. And what was funny about watching the highlights of this game, I think um, Harrogate scored two in the second half really quickly. And their striker, um, whoever scored the goal, he ran into the net, grabbed the ball, and ran back to the um, the the halfway line to get the game kicked off again because he thought they had a chance of coming back into the game. At that point, admittedly, I'm just having a look now. It was it was I think it was five two at that point. So he thought, oh, there's a chance maybe we could get back into this. But no, Mansfield went on to score four more. <laughs> yeah. 9-2 is absolutely mad. What's the closest? Probably 8-2, the United-Arsenal game that time, which was just insane. Yeah, I just tried Googling 9-2 to come up with a Saki comment, but I couldn't find one anywhere. I remember Spurs beating Wigan 9-1 in the Prem 
Yeah. Um, interesting one about that one. It was one or what half time, and then Defoe scored five. Yeovil actually lost 8-2 to Luton at the start of a season about four or five years ago. Um, like you say, Arsenal, Man United as well, but no, can't find a 9-2 anywhere. No, a just, couple of 9 nils as well quickly. for Southampton went there. Do you remember Hassan Hootel was like a really good manager, then decided to just lose 9 nil twice? Yeah, well, and Jan Bednarek, a couple little stats. Jan, Jan Bednarek ended with like <laughs> minus 10 or something on fantasy football. When it two own goals... <laughs> Two own goals, and a red. nine conceded, and a red. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's the, it's the highest score in football league game since 2011. It's the first time a side has scored nine goals in a football league game since Peterborough um, in 1998. And I think it's... And Mansfield have actually won 9-2 before, but you have to go back to 1932 for that result. <laughs> A long time Which ago. Which I remember very well. A <laughs> couple other games from there. So Stockport, who are top of the league, lost uh, 3-1 at home to Crew. Crew, I think, have moved up into automatic uh, positions now because Barrow lost against Forest Green Rovers, who are in the bottom two. Absolute disastrous result, that, for Barrow. And I think Grimsby and Colchester now be looking over their shoulder because Forest Green clawed some... Uh, momentum back there there's league two I know we speak about this every week but there's four points between seventh and 14th and I know that's similar with the championship and probably league one but league two just seems to throw up mad score lines you get five alls nine twos goals everywhere red cards just an absolutely mad league um and that seems to happen week in week out I saw on Twitter the other day I saw on Twitter the other day and not this was before they won at the weekend I think they won on um I don't know uh, midweek, maybe they won. But one before that, I saw a fan on Twitter who was genuinely worried about relegation. Um, and they're in the playoffs. So that's how mad that league is. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the uh, key fixtures from this weekend. We'll start with Notts County. They go to Wrexham, which is obviously the great battle from the National League last year. And Macaulay Langstaff, I think, is now like five or six goals clear again at the top of the goal scorers charts for Notts County and Jody Jones, who's on the wing is absolutely clear of the assists uh, leaderboard in that league as well. So they must be scoring goals are plenty Notts County, but just conceding them at the same time. And that Wrexham game is just, just stinks of goals. Stockport go to Tranmere, Mansfield go to Warsaw and crew uh, who are in that automatic position. Now they host Harrogate, uh, who shipped nine against Mansfield, but I think still find themselves in like seventh place and right in amongst it in the playoff picture. So mad league. Laurie, let's come to you. Um, one touch on Yeovil's game at the weekend. Uh, having at Waterlooville at home, I think didn't have much luck when we went away to them, albeit their main threat is now no longer at the club. Yeah, Haven't and Waterlooville are 23rd in our league out of 24 teams. We're top, but they are the best side I've seen on the day this season. They were at, they could have beaten us 10-0. They were that good um, back, I think it was on the August bank holiday Monday. And I remember leaving there thinking, oh, maybe we won't get promoted this season. Luckily, after that, we signed Northern Ireland international Michael Smith and uh, championship goalkeeper Joe Day, which seemed to reverse our fortune somewhat, which is really nice. But having a Waterlooville, obviously, that was probably the pinnacle of their season so far. But like I say, Mo Fowl, um, who scored a brace that day, since gone to Maidstone. He actually scored against us for Maidstone two weeks ago. 
But they've still got some threats, a um, couple of good wingers down there. Ryan Seager plays up front for them. He's a Yeovil lad as well. So we'll have to be on our on our uh, on top of our game. But we haven't lost at Hewish Park all season, um, and I don't expect this this weekend to be any different. So hopefully, first first place in the league at home to twenty third, we can expect three points at the weekend. But uh, yeah, maybe there'll be some goals because that last one was four three. Indeed, hopefully be a good day up at Hewish Park. Boys, that's all we got time for. Um, we'll be back on Monday, though, where we will review all of the weekend action. We'll also look ahead to the second half of the Champs League and other European games. And I'm sure there'll be some midweek EFL as well. But pleasure as always, chaps. Cheers. Cheers, boys. One, two.